Welcome to our exchanges at Goldman Sachs Markets Update for Thursday, June 18th. Each week, we check in with a leader across the firm to get his or her take on what they're watching in markets. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. And my guest today is Philip Berlinski, COO of Global Equities in our Global Markets Division. Welcome, Philip. Hi, thanks for having me. So just before we get started, why don't you just give us a quick intro and explain your role here at the firm? Uh, thanks. So I joined the firm as an analyst in 1998, and I've done various roles across equities since then, both in our investing businesses and our trading businesses. And then most recently, I'm COO of equities. And also most of my experience is from Europe, where I spent the first 20 years in Europe, and I moved to New York City a year ago. A great time to move to New York City. You're getting to see uh, the best of it. So let's start big picture. You're talking to clients all the time. What are you hearing from them? And what's your high level view on on equity markets right here in mid-June? Okay, sure. I mean, I can just give a quick narrative and kind of where we are now, because I think the biggest question is, why are equities where they are? And so I think that's, that's, a, that's a question that we keep getting. And I would say it's maybe not the most hated rally that I've seen, but I think there are a lot of people scratching their heads. And I think hopefully we can get into retail participation later on, because I think that's I think that may be part of the culprit, although it probably is a, it's much smaller than people expect. So look, I think I think what happened is we saw massive increased volatility in March around the coronavirus. I think there was clearly a lot of uncertainty around what it would mean, what sort of recovery will we get. And so you clearly saw forced liquidation in certain parts of the market. And then I also think you had a very large uncertainty around the type of policy response we're going to get, both fiscal and monetarily. And then also in, in terms of like regionally, like where will you get the response and, and how aggressive will they be? I think post the low in March, we have clearly seen a very, very strong snapback in all risk assets. And I'll say that mainly is from the fact that the, the Federal Reserve and the other central banks around the world have been extremely proactive. Um, and how they've responded to the crisis. And I also think on the fiscal side, there's been upside surprises from more cooperation in Europe and the stimulus paycheck support packages that you saw in the US. So I think all that, basically what it means is during that period of high volatility, you saw lots of money going into corporate bond funds and money market funds. Now the Fed has basically told us you should price out any sort of rate hike for the next two to three years. And I think then the question is, although equities are generally riskier given their higher volatility, it clearly, given the slightly better data that you're seeing and the fact that it looks now more to be a V-shaped recovery in a zero interest rate world and where IG corporate credits are now trading tighter than they were pre-crisis, you know, equities may be the best place to put money. And so I think there's a lot of questions over what are the flows going to be of kind of balanced bond equity funds? Or are they going to position themselves more towards equity? So I just think that you've seen a slight contraction of liquidity. So if you look at like top of book depth for, let's say, futures, there's much less liquidity now than there was in the past three, four years. And so I think that you're seeing moves exacerbated given slightly less liquidity. And basically, most investors I speak to think equities are expensive, but maybe relative to bonds, they're less expensive. So before COVID, if you can imagine back that far, there was a ton of focus on the US election. Now that the monetary and and fiscal response have come in and things have stabilized a little bit, the elections are back in focus. How do you think the election, US election, is factoring into in the views of market participants? Yeah, again, that's been high on our investors' priorities and things they're looking at. So I would start saying that I have no view on the outcome of the elections, but I think that the two most pertinent observations are, 
One of them is obviously, if you look at betting markets, they've clearly shifted odds over the last two months. So I think that you're definitely seeing a shift in sentiment and potential outcomes for the elections. But then I think also something that most people on this podcast probably can't observe is if you look at how much risk is being priced in for that one day, in the options market, you actually can back out how much the market is expected to move on the election. And I can say that the amount of move is now around 3% from 2%. And again, it's a very noisy time series, but clearly the market is pricing in a lot more risk over the election now than they did six months ago or 12 months ago. I think that's partially due to the, to the shifted odds. And you can see the same in the VIX, where the VIX has futures contracts that trade. And so you can see that in November is pricing much higher volatility than either October or December. But I think then the most interesting point, and this is where we're seeing a lot of activity, the most interesting point is that then when you look at potential changes in policies, and I think a good one is tax policy. So we have our securities division, our global markets division has basically put together baskets that looks at high tax companies and low tax companies from pre the 2016 election. And high tax companies went from a 32% average tax rate to a 20%. And low tax companies went from 18 to 21%. And what you saw is you saw a 20% outperformance of high tax rate to low tax rate. So basically, the election repriced the high tax rate given the tax rate has been cut. And that basket has barely moved in the last three months. So although you're seeing betting markets changing odds, and although you're seeing higher probability of a large move, which tells you there's more uncertainty, the market is basically saying there's no change in any policy. And so we're seeing a lot of clients put on baskets around potential changes in policy, tax rates, or focus on any potential new government. And so both in research, Ben Snyder has put out a lot of research on that, or in our equities division, Nick Gelber. So there are a lot of baskets and thematic trades that we're seeing. And I think I would say the high tax versus low tax baskets are the ones that we're seeing most traction with. Interesting. So one topic that's gotten a lot of attention and, and you can put it in perspective for us is the rise of the day trader. I mean, you know, the theory is that people are stuck at home. They can't watch sports, can't bet on sports. So they're uh, speculating in markets. And I'm, no doubt some of that's true. But you, you mentioned earlier that it may not be quite as large an impact as, as some people think. Talk a little bit about the, the rise of retail post-COVID and, and what it's meant for markets. You know, I'd also just like to thank, uh, you know, there are lots of people within Global Markets Division who do work on this. And I think Scott Rubner in, in equities and John Marshall in our research division has written a lot of that. And if any listeners have any further questions, they can reach out to me or them. And I'm sure there's a lot more uh, granular detail that we have. So look, we have seen a resurgence in retail activity, given most people are working from home. And, you know, this period has been compared to Textos in 99, to the China A shares in 2014, to Bitcoin in 2017. And so I think the one thing that we can track, so I think it's difficult to track how many users Robinhood has attracted, because I think they've clearly been a platform that's been geared more towards the younger audience and retail day traders. But if you look at Ameritrade, Schwab, E-Trade, Interactive Brokers, they have added, I think, four and a half million accounts year to date. And so now accounts are around 34 and a half million. So we've clearly seen a very large increase in the number of accounts. I think that May may have been the second largest monthly addition of accounts on record. So that tells you that there's been a lot of activity, a lot of accounts being added. And so then the question is, uh, what's the impact that that's generating? And so I think there are different ways to look at it. But obviously, I think there's one aspect of if you Robinhood publishes, or actually most of the online brokers publish the most active shares by their community, 
And so if you look at the most active shares in the retail community, that basket is up 23% year to date with the S&P down 3%. But obviously, if you then look at what makes up that basket, I think, and this gets rebalanced every month, a lot of those baskets are basically much smaller names and they're not large cap. So I think that what I'm basically saying is for a small part of the market, retail has had a lot more impact. And I think the, the most well-publicized one is Hertz. Post the bankruptcy filing, the stock surged and they were looking at potentially doing a stock sale, although market participants and the way bonds were trading was expecting no recovery in equity. So that tells you that there is a lot of speculation in smaller second-tier names. And I think there's a bunch of examples of small stocks that traded a million shares a day and are now trading 150 million. And they kind of become like doubled, tripled, went up tenfold in a very short period of time. But I think that if you then dig underneath, and this is probably the best way of thinking about it is, if you look at the top 100 names in the US and you say what percentage of the trades are small shared trades, it's gone up a little bit over the last two years. It's maybe gone from 1% to 2%, 3%. And so you're saying that's more retail participation. But obviously, if you're trading large cap names, institutional still matter a lot. But then if you look at the S&P 500, so let's say the next 400 names, it went from 3% to almost 10% at the peak was smaller lots. And I think that's telling you that that's retail. And they're clearly having more impact on smaller names, given they're less liquid, smaller market caps, and they're more concentrated there. And so question now is, so I think we've seen a lot of activity in, again, you can put together these baskets to try to follow what retail is doing. And I think that the worry is, is that if you get a, any sort of sell-off or any sort of increased market volatility, you may actually see some of these retail names that may have not as strong fundamental underpinning, given that they seem to be very speculative, underperform. So that's a question. It's also interesting, Fidelity just recently put out data around, these were kind of like, who's buying the market? I think over a third of their investors, age 65 and over, sold all their equity holdings between February and May. And obviously, at the same time, you're seeing Robinhood account usage has increased and you're seeing all kind of accounts being added. So this clearly also seems to be if you look at who owns U.S. equity markets. According to the Federal Reserve, U.S. households own 36% of the equity market cap compared to 3% from hedge funds. And so the return of retail investors has been a key theme in 2020, which has been absent uh, most of the last decade. Interesting. So demographic shift a little bit in the yeah. in the ownership of the market. So for a while now, we've been talking and and, and observing the the rise of passive in investing and and active is really sort of seen its influence over the market shrink a little bit. Has the crisis changed that a little bit, that dynamic? And and what's the role of active managers right now? So you know, maybe it's probably helpful to split it into three parts, right? So I think you have the active management, mutual funds, hedge funds. So you have active managers, you have passives, which obviously been, has seen spectacular growth. And my expectation is you'll continue to see growth given the proliferation of low-cost ETFs and, and indexation, which I think is a great theme for investors. And then maybe the third bucket, which has always been there, but I think that this kind of ties back into retail speculation. Then there's levered index ETFs. And so what's actually actually interesting, if you look at levered ETFs, I think Robinhood holdings have gone up by 250% on those instruments. And I'll start with those because I think those are purely speculative and are probably not very useful in terms of long-term wealth accumulation. Is effectively anything that's levered, and this is also exacerbating some of the volatility given that it's a lot of retail, anything that's levered means 
if you have two times leverage and the market goes down, you need to sell on the way down. And if, if the market goes up, you need to buy. So effectively, all these levered ETFs, and we've seen it in oil and we've seen it in the VIX, are basically in a way constructed that ultimately they will lose money for investors because they buy on the way up and they sell on the way down. So if we exclude that, because I think that is a trend where it's an active trading and speculative instrument at the moment, but it's difficult to see huge long-term growth given what I said is a drag on performance. And so then, then if you're focusing on active and passive, and something we need to make sure, like, or maybe instead of using passive, we can use indexation. I think that active has seen better performance over the last six months. I think that given everything we spoke about, uncertainty, and also kind of like accounting matters today, Wirecard, which is a German comp- like a German tech darling, dropped 65% on the back of the fact that part of their, like $2 billion was missing from their balance sheet. And again, this was something that has been well publicized in the press and people who spend a lot of time looking at fundamentals and companies basically thought that there were issues with accounting. And so I think what's interesting is obviously there is a very big role for, for fundamental analysis. There's a big role for active And I think at the point where you're at inflection points where kind of some of the trends of globalization has shifted, potential election outcomes has shifted, I think there's clearly a role for active and there's been some outperformance. But I think that given the cost advantages of passive, we're going to continue to see flows into passive. And I think we're going to continue to see active managers, I think, probably do well and, and, and those who outperform continue to gather assets. So you mentioned at the, at the outset, Philip, that you've spent the vast bulk of your career, two decades or so, uh, in, in European markets, and, and we've mostly been focused on the U.S. here. Talk a little bit about, about what you're seeing in Europe right now, where interest rates are, are hovering at zero or, or sometimes negative. How, how are the equity markets responding there? I think there's a few things, right? So Europe has underperformed, the European equity markets have underperformed the U.S. equity markets, but I would say the biggest driver of that underperformance is probably due to the fact that Europe and actually the rest of the world has a much lower tech component. So if you look at technology, they make up probably like 60, 70% less in Europe than they do in the US. And, and obviously the US has been very, like the equity markets have been very much driven by software and technology companies. So I think that's, that's one big difference, but that's also just meant that when you're looking at Europe and you're looking, thinking to be an investor in Europe, I think you realize that the companies are just lower growth because there's less technology. And then at the same time, you need to become an expert on European politics. And so every, it seems like every two to four years now, we're basically, there's a question around the commitment to the European project. And I think Europe then proves the narrative wrong and that there is a commitment. And again, that has happened again now. So like we're seeing both fiscally and from the ECB, we're seeing a lot of support for the union and more mutualization. And so I think that investor sentiment is now shifting more towards Europe, given the actions that we've seen. Again, it will be limited by the fact that some of those companies are not as growthy. Um, And then I think the other thing that we're beginning to see is if you look at currency markets, I think the US dollar has exhibited some weakness. And obviously, most international investors think about their returns in dollar terms. And so if you see continued dollar weakness, then maybe Europe, if you're seeing a 5-10% potential dollar weakening, then maybe Europe will look more attractive. Obviously, if the euro strengthens too much, that's bad for European economic conditions and with slow growth. It is also potentially a currency tailwind for investors who are potentially worried about the U.S. fiscal path, and the fact that we're more dependent on the consumer in the U.S. than the rest of the world. And so you could see a slightly weaker dollar, and that may help flows go into Europe, 
given that most most investors then don't hedge currencies. So I think there could be a bit of a resurgence, but again, the politics continue to be a worry, although that seems to have been diminished now, uh, given the news we've seen. Excellent. Well, thanks, Philip, for giving an overview, and thanks for joining us today. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week's Markets Update on Exchanges Goldman Sachs. In case you missed it, check out our other episode this week with Hari Morthy, head of transaction banking here at Goldman, on how digital banking will simplify corporates' financial needs going forward. Thanks for listening. I hope everyone has a safe and healthy weekend. This podcast was recorded on Thursday, June 18th in the year 2020. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.